This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. I first want to apologize that it's taken me a while to release this episode. A few things came up that delayed my ability to record, and yet I'm uh, thankful for the delay because it gave me some time to think through what I'm about to share with you. To be honest, this talk has been hijacked in a way. (laughs) I originally intended to talk only of Aquila and Priscilla and the lessons that I've learned by studying their lives in the New Testament. And yet, as I prepared my notes for this talk, I found my thoughts going towards larger issues that are informed by the circumstances of their lives. The title of this talk is Aquila, Priscilla, and Carl. And Carl is Karl Marx, whom we know through Marxism, an economic and political theory which is becoming popular once again. And though I'll look at Marx a bit later, the primary focus of this talk is on the lessons we learn by looking at the lives of Aquila and Priscilla as they're recorded in the New Testament writings. So let's take a look at what we know of that couple. We first encounter Aquila and Priscilla in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 18, we read, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Well, we see here that Aquila was a native of Pontus, which is a region of Asia Minor, which is now sort of northeastern Turkey. That's on the southeast coast of the Black Sea. And Aquila was by occupation a tent maker, he and his wife. And they met Paul when he first visited Corinth. There is an interesting study. I may do this a little bit later. What happened when Paul went from Athens to Corinth? We can see in the scriptures, in the book of Acts, and in his letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians, that there was a change of heart that he had as he went from Athens to Corinth. I think I'll talk about that in a future talk. It's pretty interesting. So he arrives in Corinth, and he meets Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Priscilla is just the short form or the familiar form of the name Prisca, which I like that name, actually, Prisca. So along with his wife, Aquila had fled from Rome as a consequence of a decree by the Roman emperor Claudius that commanded all Jews to leave the city. This decree happened around 50 AD. So that gives us a little bit of a time frame of when Paul is arriving in Corinth. And this event, this decree by the emperor Claudius, is referred to in the writings of Roman historians. One is Suetonius and another is Cassius Dio. And then there's a 5th century Christian author named Paulus Orosius who refers to this decree by Claudius removing all the Jews from the city. So it's not just in the New Testament scriptures that we have historical records of this. Interestingly, there were at least two other decrees like this that kicked the Jews out of Rome before this event. In 139 BC, The Jews were expelled from Rome after they were accused of Judaizing among the local Gentiles. That means they were proselytizing among the Gentiles, and they were kicked out. And again, that same reason was given in AD 19, 
when the emperor Tiberius expelled the Jews from Rome. So this was something that happened several times. The Jews would be kicked out of the city, and then they would return. And it happens here that we see Aquila and his wife Priscilla have been kicked out of Rome. They're followers of Jesus, but they are Jewish, and they were kicked out of Rome because they were Jewish. Now, this has been happening for generations. Just within the last hundred years, Jews were forcibly removed and murdered in Europe. There were large, vibrant Jewish communities all across Europe, and and they're gone now. You know, I travel here throughout Central Europe, and I've seen huge, empty synagogues in Central Europe. In Ukraine and Hungary and other places, there just are no more Jews in these areas. They were all forced to leave their homes because they were Jewish, and most were killed only because they were Jewish. This kind of thing has been going on for thousands of years. We also read in the scripture from Acts chapter 18 that Paul stayed with Aquila and Priscilla. That is, he shared life with them in many ways. They were very close. Then a little bit later in Acts chapter 18, we read that Paul stayed in Corinth for some time, Actually, it was a year and a half, 18 months. And then it continues in Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. And they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. And in verse 24, we read, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, And he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. Interesting. Apollos was speaking accurately and truly, but he only knew the baptism of John. And Apollos, in verse 26, it says, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So after Paul had been in Corinth for 18 months, Aquila and his wife accompanied him to Ephesus, and there they remained while he proceeded on to Syria. Now let's take a moment to think about Aquila and Priscilla and how they came to meet Paul. They were Jewish tent makers who were followers of Jesus, and they had been deported from their home in Rome by order of the government. They had done nothing wrong. They were removed from their homes because, and only because, they were Jews. They were persecuted because they were part of a class of people that was deemed to be undesirable by the government. And that's a hard thing to live through when we really think about it. Imagine you, where you are now, if the government came to you and said, you're in a class of people that we don't like, And you need to leave your home in 72 hours. This has happened historically many times. You need to leave your home in a few hours. Uh, I know people in Estonia that were given uh, less than a day to gather up their things. The communists came and said, we're going to deport you all out to the Far East and you have to leave Estonia and you've got four hours to put together what you can travel with. That's hard. That is really hard. And this brings me to Karl. Karl Marx. This is where my thinking went over the past several days. Now, there are many people who are, of course, much better scholars and understand much more about Marxism and communism and socialism 
than I do, but because of where I live and work, which is in Eastern and Central Europe, and because of the history here, both the Russian Revolution and World War II, I've read quite a bit about the history in this part of the world, and I have also seen firsthand the results of a Marxist system and how it affects generations. So what I'm about to share is fairly shallow, I guess, and it is the result of my reading, study, experience, and my reflections. And Marxism is once again in the news as an ideology that's quite attractive to large groups of people, particularly, it seems, young people in the United States right now. There are Marxists who are working for more power within existing structures, and some want to destroy and rebuild what they see as corrupt and broken world systems. That's happening right now. It's in the news, and that's why my thoughts were going to Marxism recently. Now, it's not my intention to compare Marxism with capitalism or liberal democracy. That's not what I want to get into at all. But I do want to compare it with the kingdom of God, what God has revealed to us about his character, and how does Marxism line up with what God reveals is true. So I don't want to get into any political discussions, really, though I guess it's impossible to avoid that at some point when talking about Marxism. But I am not promoting some other system against it other than the kingdom of God. I hope that makes sense. There's something interesting about Karl Marx. He was born in 1818, and his family was Jewish. And they converted to Christianity so that his father could pursue a career as a lawyer because Prussia at the time had anti-Jewish laws. Isn't that interesting? That Karl Marx, his family, was under that same sort of persecution If you're a Jew, you can't be a lawyer. And I know people who lived in Yugoslavia under a Marxist rule there, and Christians were not allowed to go to university. Christians were not allowed to have certain professions, like being a lawyer or professor, things like that. They were treated as a class of people who were undesirable, and they were limited in their freedoms because of the class they were in. So it's interesting that Carl was born into a family that faced that very issue in a very personal way. So Marxism, the teachings of Karl Marx and also uh, others, of course, at the time, but what we know is Marxism originally, in many parts of the world still, was an economic Marxism. And that means that people are defined by their economic class. And you've probably heard these words, you may know them. There's the proletariat and the bourgeois. And the proletariat is the working class people. And they're regarded collectively as a collective, not as individuals. The proletariat is the working class, the ones who actually labor. And the bourgeois are the capitalist class. And those are the people who own most of society's wealth and the means of production is the phrase. So the bourgeois is understood by Marxism to benefit from the labor of the proletariat. Now, you may know that one of the signs of communism is the hammer and the sickle. You've seen probably that classic emblem of communism. And the hammer represents the workers in the factories in the cities, and the sickle represents the workers on the farms. The the sickle is used for harvesting. So that's why the hammer and the sickle is the image of communism or Marxism, because it's focusing on the workers, those who do the labor 
working in the cities and the factories or those who work on the farms. Now, there are a few basic Marxist ideas that influence what I'm talking about right now. One basic idea of Marx is that the workers collectively should own the means of production. This is also a definition of socialism, that rather than the middle and upper classes owning the factories, the workers collectively should own the means of production. And also there was a belief and, a, a, well, there was action that there should be no more private property. So property owned by the middle and upper classes should be taken from them and distributed evenly among the working classes, and again, collectively. So it's not that individuals own these things, the working classes collectively own the means of production and all the property, all the wealth of a country. Well, in Russia, that meant that the government, which is understood as a representative of the collectives of the workers, the government took control of all the factories, of all the businesses. There was no more private business. There was no more private property. And the government took ownership of housing. The apartment that we live in, in St. Petersburg, was originally owned by um, some German businessmen who built that building before the Russian Revolution. And during the Russian Revolution, it was taken from those owners, and these apartments were then filled with workers, where there had been one family living in several rooms. Uh, they would move workers in, and one family would each have a room, and then there were communal flats. They call them communal flats or communal apartments, which meant that each room had a family in it, but they all shared a kitchen and a bathroom. And the government puts families into what were the bedrooms or the living rooms of these apartments. It's interesting when the government gets involved in those sorts of things. Um, Olga was telling me that the government would limit how many burners you could have on your stove. Let's say you went and got from one of the state factory stores a four-burner stovetop. But the government thought that you didn't need four burners because there's only two of you living there. So they would come in and they would disable a burner or two if the government didn't think you deserved to have or needed two more burners. And then they'd send a government inspector into your house, into your kitchen, to assure that you still have just three burners working on your four-burner stove. Isn't that something? Yeah, for a lot of people, I guess that would be normal, but for me, coming from the USA, that's quite a challenge. Well, originally, and still in many parts of the world, Marxism is primarily economic Marxism, divining people by their economic class. But now in the West, we see a cultural Marxism, which defines people not by their economic class, but by their cultural class. Of course, economics play a part in defining some classes. And some people, even in high levels of government, would like to see economic Marxism in the United States and in Europe. But there's now a form of cultural Marxism, which is also called identity politics, which defines people according to cultural classes by race or sexual orientation or gender, etc. And this cultural Marxism means that some classes are to be favored while others are to be deprived of their property and their privilege. This is how Marxism works its way into culture, defining people not as individuals but by their class. Now, I'm not saying that only Marxists have these class views, 
All through history, individuals have been persecuted because they are in a, quote, undesirable, unquote, class of people. Racists think this way. Clearly, Claudius thought this way when he deported the Jews from Rome. Claudius was not a Marxist. And yet, today, Marxism is once again asserting itself. And it's good for us to think about what it really means to be a Marxist and what it really means to be a Christian. Well, there are contrasts with Christianity. First of all, in Christianity, God values individuals. All are made in the image of God. All have value regardless of their class. Of course, we see this when Jesus was walking on the earth, that he hung out with the, quote, sinners. They were classed as sinners, and yet he was loving the individuals. But I want to look now at the Old Testament for just a moment. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and following, God declares that there is a new covenant coming. I've talked about this in previous episodes. In this new covenant, God promises that every individual will know him and that his spirit is given to individuals, not just to a class. So I'll just read again, Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and following, how God says this new covenant is going to be. And, of course, Jesus institutes this new covenant upon his death. Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Here comes the new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So here we see clearly under the new covenant, God is saying, each individual is going to know me and I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. And no longer do you have to go to somebody else to say, tell me about the Lord. Everyone is going to know him. Each individual will know the Lord from the least to the greatest. In Ezekiel 36, we also see another image of the new covenant, uh, what God says he's going to do. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and following. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Of course, we see this on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, when God's Spirit comes down and separates itself and goes into each individual believer. God gives his Spirit to individual people. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about how the Good Shepherd personally interacts with each individual sheep. In John 10 verse 3, Well, let's start in in verse 2. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. 
And here's what I want to underscore. Jesus says, The shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He's not just calling to a large herd or class of sheep, but he knows each sheep individual and each of his followers individually. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that he'll leave 99 and go find the one that has strayed. Jesus focuses on, knows each person individually, values each person individually. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So here Jesus is saying, I know you so well that I know the number of the hairs on your head. And if I know about every sparrow on the earth that falls to the ground, I certainly know about you and care for you. He knows the number of hairs on each head. And in my case, he needs to keep a close watch because that number seems to decrease each day. (laughs) So Marxism misses the mark on three points that I want to mention today. Marxism is, by definition, a godless belief system. Marx said, Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. Religion is the opium of the people. You may have heard that quote, and it might have been attributed to other people. The opiate of the masses. Religion is the opium of the people. And by this, Marx means that people seek comfort in religion, like an opiate, but religion actually hinders them from being fully free. Marxism is anti-religious. It is anti-Christ. By definition, it's a godless belief system. Well, this led, here in Russia, in the Russian Revolution, that the Russian communists then killed tens of thousands of priests and destroyed countless churches. And those effects are still seen here in the culture. One of the main squares in St. Petersburg uh, was called the Resurrection Square, and there was a huge church of the Resurrection right downtown. And that was destroyed by the communists, and they built a subway station there where that great church had been, and they named it Revolution Square. So they went from Resurrection Square to Revolution Square. Marxists and communists to this day continue to imprison and kill many, many Christians and other religious people around the world. It's an atheistic worldview. There are still people who want to remove entire classes of people and usher in that beautiful Marxist ideal society. And they say if only religion could be removed or if only the wealthy were removed or if only private property were abolished, it just goes on and on. And the question comes to my mind, Really, how can a person be a follower of Christ and a follower of Marx? I don't see how it's possible because those two paths do not lead to the same destination. Uh, You might share certain values, wanting the poor to be lifted up and helped. But to be a Marxist, I don't see how that's compatible with Jesus and his kingdom. There's a second point where Marx differs from Christianity. And I've talked about this extensively now. In Marxism, people are only valued by their class, by their place in their class. 
If a person is in an undesirable class, then they can have their property taken, they can be imprisoned, or they can be killed on that basis only, just because they are in a class that has been deemed by people in power to be undesirable. And of course, that's not the Christian way at all. Another fundamental idea of Marxism is that people can be perfected in and of themselves without the help of God. The thinking is, if there was no private property and if the workers owned collectively the means of production, then everything would be well and justice would be established. Marxism assumes that people are really basically good down inside. And if hindrances to evolutionary growth could just be removed, then humans would live in perfect harmony and humans would choose the very best thing for all mankind. I have a an example that pretty much refutes that in real day-to-day life. Olga's grandparents, of course, grew up under the communists, and in their apartment they had a refrigerator. And this refrigerator had a lock on it, built into it at the factory. It looked like a car door lock. You put a key in, you could lock your refrigerator. And that was because when people lived in these communal apartments, everybody shared a kitchen and a bathroom. You had your own room, and then a common hallway that would go to the kitchen and the bathroom. And if you put your refrigerator in that common kitchen, you needed to lock up your food because the other people in that communal apartment might very well take your food. That's still happening today. There's still communal apartments in the city. And I thought, well, that lock on that refrigerator tells us that people are not basically good, (laughs) that people are going to steal things that don't belong to them. And that even under communism, uh, there was this ideal of the workers being pure and sharing equally among themselves, and yet you still have to put a lock on your refrigerator. And though people desire Marxism, and there's a lot that is attractive about it, I think, the results of Marxism have always been the same. There have just always been large numbers of people suffering, dying, totalitarian governments beat down their people, And it leads to hopelessness and a breaking of families. The list is really long. So, among many other things, God teaches us three things. First, there is a God who defines what is right and what is wrong. Marxism teaches that there is no God. But God says he is the source of truth and what is right and justice. The second thing that we learn from the Lord is that individuals are of great value. Each life is valuable in the eyes of God. Marxism judges people by their class, not as individuals. Lenin very famously said when he was told of the millions that were dying because of their policies to move into this new Marxist world, he said, you have to break some eggs to make an omelet. That was his view of the suffering of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, that it was just a necessary thing if you're going to create something that's better. And yet God values each person. He knows each person so well, and he values people as individuals. The third point that I've mentioned, and I'll restate again, that God teaches us is humans, though we are created in the image of God, We are also corrupt and corruptible. And because of that, we're not basically good or basically pure. 
we humans just won't choose the right path on our own. We need help. And that's why the Lord has come to the earth to bring this new covenant and to give us his spirit as a helper to help us. We need help. Money, fame, and power will absolutely corrupt people. Marxism assumes and teaches that people will rise to higher levels if only the restraints can be removed. Down inside, deep down inside, people are basically good. Of course, that leads me to think, how can you divine good if, if there is no God? What's your standard of definition? And, of course, people define that differently. Uh, what is good? Certainly the Nazis defined what is good very differently than most of the rest of the world. Now, I do want to say that I do not doubt or question the heartfelt motivations of most Marxists. Those are people who want to see an equitable society. About a hundred years ago, just after the Russian Revolution, there were a lot of well-meaning Marxists who moved from the United States to Russia to participate in what they assumed would be one of the greatest steps forward in the history of mankind. And most of those people were ultimately arrested, imprisoned, and met tragedy and death in Soviet work camps. And those are tragic stories of people who had such hope only to be crushed by the application of Marxist ideology. I do not doubt or question the heartfelt motivation of most Marxists. They want to see a good society. Well, this brings me back now to our original topic. Aquila and Priscilla were not treated as individuals, but as members of a cultural class, the Jews. Well, what more do we know of Aquila and Priscilla? They'd been removed by command of the emperor from their home in Rome. They met Paul in Corinth and then traveled with him to Ephesus, where they met Apollos and helped him understand the, the ways of God better. And they're mentioned a couple more times in Paul's letter. It's quite interesting to me here. In Romans chapter 16, at the very end, when Paul is sending greetings to various people in Rome, he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. I think this is really wonderful. There are a few things that we learn here, more about Aquila and Priscilla. First, we learn that at some point, they risked their lives for Paul. Don't know the circumstances of that, but certainly things were very dangerous in that part of the world at that time for Paul and other believers. Some were being fed to animals and things like that. They risked their lives for Paul. Also, we see that they were very active in ministry among the non-Jewish Christian fellowships. Among the churches of the Gentiles, they were serving, and everyone was very grateful to them for their service. I think that's really beautiful. And they have a church meeting in their home, in Rome. They're back home in Rome now. When Paul is writing the letter to the church in Rome, Priscilla and Aquila are now in Rome again, and they're active in ministry. They've got a home church. And we see them one more time, quite a few years later, in Ephesus. Interestingly, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is ministering in Ephesus. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. So we see here that Priscilla and Aquila are now in Ephesus once again, where Timothy is. 
And that's the place where the Apostle John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived for a time. And you know, it's really fun to think of Timothy and Priscilla and Aquila and John and Mary all in fellowship in an Ephesian house church. So when we look at Priscilla and Aquila, they're kicked out of their home in Rome. They travel a bit. Ultimately, they end up back in Rome again and then later in Ephesus again, where they had been doing so much work. Well, there are people listening to me now who live in a foreign land and they speak a second language in order to make a living. And these people haven't been forced from their homeland by an angry government, but there are forces nonetheless that have prompted them to leave their homeland and live as strangers in a new culture. To those people, I want to remind you of the comforting words of Psalm 84. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength until each appears before God in Zion. I know that some people listening are not in their homeland. They have left their home and feel like they're on a pilgrimage, that they really are kind of homeless. Well, God knows that, and it's actually good to have our hearts set on pilgrimage. And now many listening to this feel safe in their home culture right now and have not been called to a foreign land. To those people, I want to remind you that everything you have on this earth is temporary. Everything that you own now will either be owned by someone else later or it's going to disappear into a trash heap. Someone else is going to live in your home. All of your clothes and the things that you own are going to be thrown into the trash or owned by someone else. That's just the way it is. We should not cling to these things and have them be anchors within a society or a culture. We have to let go and realize that we're stewards of what we have for now. Now, for all of us, when I look at the lives of Aquila and Priscilla, I just see that there are forces in this world that push us into circumstances that are not of our own choosing. There are times when situations occur where we are forced to leave our homes, to leave our comfort zones, to live a life that we have not chosen for ourselves, and it can be quite painful, and God allows this to happen. Aquila and Priscilla, though they were forced from their home, were in the will of God each time we see them. They lived their lives in service to the king of kings, even as earthly powers were defining where they were allowed to live. Every time we see Aquila and Priscilla, they're within the work of God. And this reminds me of something that we see in Acts chapter 8, right at the very beginning. And it says that on the day that Stephen was stoned, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned for him deeply. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. That's what I want to underscore. There were all these forces that were pushing believers to leave their homes. Some were being imprisoned. Some were scattered around, and all of them preached the word wherever they went. 
If God is forcing you out of your comfort zone, if something else is forcing you out of the comfort zone, some decision by governmental authorities, you can still preach the word wherever you go. This is the lesson that I get from Aquila and Priscilla. They are just a great example of how God redeems our lives, how everything works for good for those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. So, until next time, my friends, I pray that God will continue to reveal his ways to you because as we walk in his ways, we always find peace for our souls. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.